Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 65 Differ I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Mosaic, I'm Doc and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forwards to the future while learning from the past. This episode, we take a look at how our priors affect our perceptions. We question what can critics tell us, consider when our perceptions are deeply divided, and look at attribution. Why do reasonable minds differ? This show dives deep into DC Films for answers and insights as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. Welcome back, my wonderful friends. As fans of these films, we often walk away from a discussion with detractors wondering, did we even see the same film? <laughs> you adore and they detest, but we both saw the same thing. We sat through the same runtime, experiencing essentially the same systematic stimulus of our optic nerves and auditory senses. The same stream of photons, the same series of sound waves. Some eye-tracking studies have even shown that our eye movements matches more often than not. Brain scans can even show the same parts tend to light up overall. And yet our experience, our evaluation, and our expression differ dramatically. In our movie research, we could show people agree that they saw an action movie, or they disagree with how good it was. So they agree that what they saw, just not how good it was. That's psychologist Pascal Wallish, and we'll be hearing more about his research in this episode. So why do we disagree if we saw the same thing? Why does this happen and what does it mean? Can the answers illuminate our attitudes towards each other or explain how two superheroes on the same side of justice always manage to end up at odds? Why doesn't Batman see Superman like Metropolis does? Why doesn't Superman see Batman like Gotham does? This episode, we're going to take a look at this as partly an issue of our priors. A prior is short for prior probability distribution, used to make a Bayesian statistical inference. And without all the jargon, it means how previous beliefs, norms, or unconscious experiences affect our calculation of likelihood and reasoning. We're going to look at different ways at looking at things that may give us some access to understanding others, disabuse ourselves of naive realism, a term coined by the social psychologist Lee David Ross, referring to the tendency to believe that we see objectively and that those that disagree must be uninformed, irrational, or biased. Here's Dr. Ross. Naive realism is the conviction that we see the world in an objective, essentially unmediated way. That is to say that there's a one-to-one -one relationship between our experience of the world and what the world really is. Because of that, we expect other reasonable people to agree with us, to share our view. And we think that if they don't share our view, the thing to be understood and explained is what it is about them that's making them not see the world the way it really is, or in other words, the way we see it. And in different contexts, we come up with different explanations. Sometimes we think they're ignorant, so they need 
education and our instruction to see things correctly. Sometimes we think they're biased by self-interest. They can't afford to understand how the world really is. Sometimes we may see it as a product of their culture or their education or their youth or their senility or whatever. But what continues to be the case is that we believe that we are uniquely objective. We may even realize that we change our views sometimes. But when we realize we've changed our views, we have the conviction that we used to see things inaccurately, non-objectively, and now we've arrived at the point where we see things objectively and wisely. It's fair to say that Diana first strides into man's world with the view that only she sees the world accurately, perceiving the threat of Ares better than Steve and the Amazonian's duty better than Hippolyta, that those who disagree are blinded by the influence of Ares. Of course, over the course of the story, Diana learns that everyone has their own story. Everyone is fighting their own battles, Diana, just as you are fighting yours. So instead of the reflex to judge others evil or incomprehensibly wrong, we might just take a beat to exercise civil disagreement, bridge understanding, learn to better explain oneself, and even manage to change the occasional mind, helping them to enjoy the art as much as we do too. What could be better? <laughs> For a roadmap, first we're going to look at whether critics can predict your enjoyment of a film. Then we'll look at how our tastes and perceptions differ. And more importantly, some reasons why. Our priors shape our perceptions, evaluations, and beliefs, embodied in our tastes, politics, and more. And we'll look at a cognitive bias that affects our evaluation of others, especially in regard to authors, creators, and filmmakers. And finally, we'll apply all of this to these films, characters, and the filmmakers that we love. So, anecdotally, we know that people differ on these films, but maybe, as detractors often declare, it is merely an issue and defect of these films. That the divide and difference in opinion is evidence of error and poor quality. That there is universal agreement on good films, both in audience evaluation and critical acclaim. Enter our first psychologist, Pascal Wallach, who ran a study to see if the data supported these allegations. I'll let him describe it in his own words. We were interested in how subjective the movie taste of individuals is. To find out, we asked over 3,000 study participants to rate a large and representative sample of major motion pictures on a scale from 0 to 4 stars. When we compared these ratings, we found that individuals agree a little better than one would expect from chance, but not by much. In other words, given this low intersubjective agreement, disagreements about movie quality should be expected routinely. As a matter of fact, we did not find a single movie, good or bad, that everyone agreed on. So to unpack his summary a little, and you can of course read his full paper for more detail, Wallace had 3,204 viewers with an average age of 25.14 years evaluate 209 motion pictures from 1985 through 2004 on a four-star scale, and found extremely high disagreement, almost the maximum possible, 1.25 stars out of an RMSE of 1.7. Basically, people disagree about movies, and they disagree strongly about them. The researchers then compared the data to rankings from professional critics from 42 different sources, which only reinforced how deeply we differ on movies. So if movie taste is radically idiosyncratic, the question is whether experts, movie critics, can tell you whether or not you will like any given movie. 
The answer is no. Movie critics do no better than non-critics. Even the most renowned movie critics we studied, such as Roger Ebert, did no better than a randomly picked person in our sample, suggesting that their renown is not due to prediction accuracy. Instead, in other commentary, he credits the renown of critics for reasons such as the force of their writing, humor, insight, artistic analysis, societal signaling, cribbing commentary, or even schadenfreude. Basically, any other reason that we might enjoy a piece of content besides successful or accurate prediction. For that, he analyzed the data against aggregators. However, if you aggregate individual information, the picture becomes more nuanced. Pooling ratings from many non-critics, such as in the Internet Movie Database, allow us to achieve a prediction accuracy close to the maximum that is theoretically possible, given the inherent diversity of taste in the population. Conversely, aggregators of critic information such as Rotten Tomatoes predict well what a critic will like, but predict what non-critics will like only slightly better than individual non-critics, highlighting the divide between critics and the people who use their reviews as viewing recommendations. So what are we to conclude? Exactly what we already knew and expected, that tastes differ widely and deeply, as Wallish concludes. This study also illustrates the subjective nature of appraisal. Everyone saw the same movies, but there is very strong disagreement about what is enjoyable, implying a highly complex and multi-dimensional evaluative landscape inhabited by our minds, only some of which is shared with other individuals. So some footnotes on other findings, extrapolations, and caveats to consider. Let's translate some of those findings. In a Forbes article, the strength of agreement is extrapolated from correspondence into percentages. So the likelihood of any two random moviegoers agreeing on a film are about 25%, which is low but still better than the critic. Quote, the average agreement between critics and moviegoers is nearly zero, a mere 3%, end quote. If you were to compare any two critics, the agreement is projected to be 39%, and any one critic with Rotten Tomatoes agreement skyrockets to 55%. So critics agree with each other more than moviegoers, and they agree with critical consensus more than anything else. But moviegoers strike out with Rotten Tomatoes most of the time. Wallish found that the highest audience agreement was with IMDb at 44%, commenting, quote, ironically, what we found is that for the average person, IMDb is far more reliable than Rotten Tomatoes. As a matter of fact, it's about as reliable as you can get theoretically. And then he continues, something about being a critic seems to make the recommendations of a critic unsuitable for predicting the movie tastes of regular people. This study is the first to quantify this in an adequately powered fashion, and it helps explain why people often perceive critics to be out of touch. End quote. So if you're trying to figure out what you'd like simply on recommendation alone, your single best bet is the super predictor, followed by IMDb. Quote, there are some people in our sample who are super predictors. They perform as well as the best aggregator when it comes to predicting what average non-critics will like. Short of these exceptional predictors, if someone seeks recommendation about what to see, their best bet is either to consult sites that aggregate individual judgments or to find individuals or critics with similar tastes. End quote. So, with a grain of salt, consider his extrapolation. Quote, a big finding in psychology is that we can use movies to characterize an individual's personality. 
taste in movies is very consistent over time and says a lot about who you are as a person, your worldview, and your desires. If your movie twin likes a movie, it's as good as if you saw it yourself, so you will also likely like it. You can even find your evil movie twin. If they hated it, you will like it, although that's more rare. If it's true that one's taste in movies characterizes one's individuality, outlook on life, etc., etc., it is not unreasonable to assume that this would predict relationship success. End quote. <laughs> Anecdotally, he'd been married over a dozen years with his wife, who is among his highest correlations. <laughs> Another interesting finding was that the demographics seemed to result in no correlation or agreement. While it was statistically significant that males had greater agreement than females, it was still low to non-existent overall, and that applied across all other demographic categories like age and race. Ultimately, disagreement is still our most likely outcome, and perhaps why we put so much of a premium on using likes and liking to find our own. Now, if this doesn't accord with your own personal anecdotal experience, understand that there is a difference between your correlation with critics on a movie blindly selected, as in the study, versus your correlation with the critics on a population of movies with a self-selecting bias. Movies that you wanted to see, intended to see, were interested in, or have heard of, after which you went looking for critical opinion and all the biases and causation that entails. Or in reverse, the effect of critical claim on your likelihood to see and appraise a film, which has strongly correlated effects, long studied and well established, and also known in other terms merely as marketing. <laughs> in any case, for the sake of argument, we're going to accept that study as valid, but take it with a grain of salt. Reservations aside, the study supports the underlying argument that consensus is not the final arbiter of quality or enjoyment. As the researchers say, quote, Movies are an extremely rich, highly dimensional narrative stimulus, with many degrees of freedom for the viewers to construct their subjective experience in a highly idiosyncratic fashion. End quote. We all bring our pasts, our paradigms, our priors to our viewing. And this may explain in part when our perceptions seem so deeply divided on what seems to be the exact same objective stimulus, encapsulated in trivial examples like the color of a dress, the color of a shoe, or how a name is heard. There have been countless pieces on whether we see black and blue, white and gold, how we shade that shoe, or if we're hearing Yanny or Laurel. But I've found Pascal's pieces on Slate and in the New York Post as a persuasive accounting for priors. Here, he explains these three ambiguous illusions. Pascal Wallace, everyone. Pascal, what do you do? What we do, studying what was introduced as cognitive empathy empirically and its limits empirically. That's basically what we do. While we acknowledge that there is an objective world out there, how does your subjective reality come about? They might well disagree what they heard. We studied that in our lab empirically with music. So we actually do study that empirically. Like, what does a musician hear when they hear a musical piece? And do they agree with each other and with people who are not musicians and things like that? Movies, the dress, so the dress was fitting right. Yes, the that. dress. So please, for the love of okay. God, solve this thing that broke the earth in half. All right. Um, why do some people see this one way and some people see it right. the other? So the reason this really startled people is because all these visual illusions that we look at so far are consensual. They're all shifting us in the same direction. We all saw the shades of gray as not the same. We all saw the strawberries as red. The reason this startled people is because it was the first one that I'm aware of that really created two different camps. There was a differential illusion.
illusion. And it wasn't subtle. It's a profound categorical difference. It was not like, oh, scarlet red versus different red. No, it was like black and blue versus white and gold. So what's going on is this. What you're seeing is the end result of about a 30-step visual process in Cascade. And the bottom line is that two different people might do this processing differently. But let me walk you through why. Often the brain or the mind solves inverse problems. The only thing you have is the wavelengths that reach your retina. Yeah. You don't know if that was created from the, from the illumination or it was created from the object. Does that yeah. make sense? Inverse problems are usually resolved by making assumptions. Is, is this in sunlight or is this artificial light? I don't know. So here's what happened. They took an actually black and blue dress and photographed it in February 2016 to prepare for a Scottish wedding on a cell phone, and they super overexposed it. <laughs> Doing that, you have this washed out effect, so you are unclear what the illumination is. If you look at the top, this implies sunlight. The bottom implies artificial light, incandescent long wavelength light. So in other words, you do not know what the illumination was. Can you think of a reason why some people might assume it's sunlight and others it's more artificial light? Yeah. Most people assume what they've used to. So I was lucky because my first research was sleep research. Some people get up in the morning and some people get up late, like noon. So that's what we looked at. And like. what we found is that looking at large numbers of people, everything else being equal, people who see more sunlight, some morning people, larks, are more likely to see the dresses white and gold. The larks and night owls, unbeknownst to them, yes. in certain ambiguous situations, yes. will see two different realities. Correct. I said everything else being equal, yeah. but everything else will not be equal. Some people might be legitimately like night people, but the system forces them to wake up at morning and go to mm. teach students or something like that. Or you might be a night owl, but you might have an LED light, and then you don't have an incandescent light. According to my calculations, you need 5,000 people to show the effect reliably. But we, did, we had 13,000 people, so we were able to show it reliably. Mm. It's a dose-dependent fashion. The more, the more of a morning person you are, the more likely you are to see it as white and gold. And the more evening person you are, the more you see it as uh, black and blue. Your life choices do determine what you see. <laughs> so as you mull on that, let me mention that the video of this presentation with all its associated illusions can be found in a link in the show notes. In the next illusion, an off-color shoe is questioned. What color is the shoe, everybody? How many people here see it pink? How many people don't see pink? And gray and green? All right. The question is, do you see what the shoe actually is in reality or what it appears to be? This was now created by design. We can now engineer these things. Here's what happened. In this case, they took a white and pink sneaker and exposed it on a black background and then it illuminated this white and pink shoe with green light and then it appears to be gray and green but it actually is white and pink so what do you see and the answer to that is that depends how strong your prior belief that shoelaces are white are because if you have a strong prior belief that shoelaces are white you'll use that to disambiguate it the object calibrates itself that makes sense. The idea that beliefs can affect my perception this way is... No, no, no. When I was a kid, shoelaces were white, period. Now we have these Generation C and Millennials. Shoelaces could be any color. <laughs> uh, pastel colors. It's probably related to that. Like, what kind of shoelaces you have seen? And when I was a kid, they were white. So your experiences growing up affect whether or not you're Yeah, we don't them. actually know how long these prayers last. We're working on it. And finally, an auditory illusion that recently went viral. Laurel. Laurel. Yanny and Laurel, what's going on there? Yeah, same thing, but auditory. So what we found is, and we're going to have a paper about it coming out this summer, it depends on your prior experience. If your name is something like Yanny, you will hear it as Yanny. If your name is something like Laura, you'll hear Laurel. Basically, the Laurel is very low frequency, and the Yanny is very high frequency. So what happened was they did this on laptops. A truck went by just at the time when they were voicing it, so the second form and frequency was missing, so it's ambiguous. So right. some people hear it as high frequency, and some people as a low frequency, and that depends 
happens if you have heard more low frequency or high frequency. For instance, if you're male and your own voice is lower, then you are more likely to hear as Laurel. Laurel is fully American, trustworthy. Whereas if you hear Yanny after hear Laurel, it was there all the time. It freaks you out. It's like, Yanny, Yanny. It's like very like creepy sounding. And I actually data have to pack back up that people think it sounds creepy. You would not buy a car from Yanny. You would buy a car from Laurel. If your own voice is high pitched, you hear it as Yanny. So basically that's the bottom line. These choices that you make, you listen to like certain kind of sounds have long lasting, unexpected, unintended consequences, I would say. So the whole point about this is your brain will necessarily, because of its upbringing, because of its training, because of its plasticity, have a perspective on the world. But the world is rich, so you disagree. And that's the whole point of society is that if we disagree in goodwill, maybe you can show me a different perspective on the same phenomena and we can together as a society, as a multi-dimensional imaging, figure out what's really going on. Mm. So that's when this works well. This applies to higher level things that are not just perceptual. For instance, we looked at music, we looked at movies, your subjective reality is surprisingly idiosyncratic. You actually study people's opinions of movies, yeah. right? And so what we found, for instance, that the movie critics agree with each other, but it's not very predictive of what actual people think about movies. As Pascal points out, the lack of consensus and stability of these illusions is what makes them so shocking. For most illusions, we can all agree that we experience the same thing. And even for those ambiguous or interpretive illusions, with a little effort, we can all manage to see both things. The rabbit or the duck, the young woman with the choker looking away, or the old woman with the rather large nose, a vase or two faces in profile, etc. In 1953, the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein took a picture of the duck rabbit. You know that famous drawing where it looks like a duck facing one way and a rabbit facing the other? Well, he made a famous distinction. The distinction between seeing and seeing as. The image in front of you is the same. So in one sense, you see one image. But it's also accurate to say that you see it as a duck sometimes and as a rabbit in another. You can see one thing, but see it as two different things. Similar kinds of things I think happen in hearing. There's cases where you might hear a recording. You can hear it as the voice of a particular individual. And you can get a little bit more abstract. In a musical piece, you might hear a sound as a sound of thunder. You can get more and more abstract. You might hear a passage in a piece of music as a bumblebee. The infuriating thing about these earlier illusions is that even consciously knowing that there is another way to see it, our inaccessible unconscious subsystems doesn't allow us to switch over as easily, if at all. It is a trickier proposition to recontextualize the dress, the shoe, switch names, or agree upon the following tritone paradox. I was playing around with a number of different types of pattern and I was hearing really very strange things. When one tone of a pair is played followed by the second tone, some people hear an ascending pattern. But other people, on listening to the identical pair of tones, hear a descending pattern instead. These tones are clearly going up. And this one is clearly going down. I don't know how any of you can hear it any differently. But if Diana Deutsch is right, some of you are, and can't hear it the way I do. And maybe you're willing to fight me over this fact. I hear that as going up. I hear that as going down. Now this experience can be particularly astonishing to a group of listeners who are all quite certain of their judgments and yet disagree completely as to whether such a pair of tones is moving up or down. 
I can pretty much guarantee that your listeners will disagree among themselves as to which tone pairs they hear as ascending and which is descending. What you're hearing is Diana Deutsch's tritone paradox. It's audio's version of Wittgenstein's duck rabbit. Only half of you only see a duck, and the other half can only see a rabbit. By playing tritone notes going up and going down, an octave apart, Deutsch created an ambiguous sound that different minds resolve in different ways. The tritone paradox shows that even relative pitch is something that is heard as rather than heard. But unlike location, melodies, and speech, it's a mystery as to why this is true. Something about our experiences with tones are disposing us to hear things differently. The tritone paradox shows that even something like relative pitch is not necessarily a feature of the sound in the external environment, but rather something the mind is constructing for the ear. So much of our auditory experiences are hearing as the imposing of the mind on the world of sounds. And so our disagreements may be sincere and our resultant perceptions inaccessible even if we open our minds to alternate interpretations. Though knowing that, we should learn to disagree civilly and in good faith, take command over our willful actions and treatment of others even if our instincts fail us first. And even in these illusions, there is common ground to be had. NYU psychologist Moira Dillon. I think it's perhaps dangerous to think about that these kinds of things have pervasive effects on our perception. Mm. So we don't disagree that there's a dress, right? We Mm. all see a dress. Mm. We all can see the lighting. We all also can understand that we're looking at a colored object. So there's actually a lot that our visual system and their interpretation of the picture is giving us that's universal Mm. that isn't affected by the way that we're brought up or Mm. the kinds of life experiences that we had. And I think it's important to underlie the, even if there are differences, that there is a lot of common ground. Nonetheless, understanding priors or having an open mind to the idea that people are honest and acting in good faith allows you to expand your own understanding and insight. In the case of these illusions, those insights are relatively trivial. A lark or a night owl, whether you expect shoelaces to be white, or the frequencies that you find familiar. But our perceptual divide can go deeper into our priors, our experiences of awe, disgust, morality, and sanctity. Often, these can be tied to affiliation, culture, or loyalties. The seminal study on this was published in a paper entitled They Saw a Game, so-called because it's seemingly the only thing agreed upon by the participants from Princeton and Dartmouth, viewing a recording of the same controversial game. David McRaney tells the story. Princeton had won every game up until that point. Its star player, Dick Kazmaier, had been featured on the cover of Time magazine. It was a big game for both teams, which is why Princeton went bonkers in the second quarter after a Dartmouth player broke Kazmaier's nose. After that, it just got insane. You see, in the next quarter, a Princeton player snapped a Dartmouth player's leg. In the whole event, it was just brutal. Both sides racked up plenty of penalties before Princeton finally won by a score of 13 to 0. So after this, in the aftermath of this, psychologists Albert Hastor at Dartmouth and Hadley Cantrell at Princeton, they noticed soon after this game that the college newspapers of each school began printing stories that seemed to suggest two versions of the truth were in open competition to become the 
official version of reality. A year later, the two published a study that is now considered by many to be the best starting point for talking about self-delusion. They noticed that Princeton's newspaper and alumni newsletter published accounts of a game that painted the Dartmouth team as bullies who played dirty. At the same time, Dartmouth newspaper published editorials explaining away the injuries caused by its team while also noting the awfulness of Princeton's tactics. So both sides, these researchers, they said they remembered seeing different games. What if these students could watch that game again, thought the scientists. Sure, they remembered the game differently, but what if we showed them a film of it? Would they see the game differently in real time as well? And to answer this, the scientists acquired a recording of the entire matchup, and they showed it to undergraduates from both schools, and they had those students check when they saw infractions. And, and in addition, they marked how severe each infraction seemed to them. The students also filled out some questionnaires. So what were the results? Well, during the film, Princeton students believed they were watching a violent, uncivilized game, and Dartmouth was to blame. 90% wrote they they felt Dartmouth had started the unsportsmanlike conduct, and they also reported seeing twice as many infractions coming from Dartmouth than they saw coming from Princeton, and they found those infractions committed by their own school's team to be much milder than those committed by their school's opponents. Dartmouth students, however, they saw something else. They didn't see the game as unnecessarily barbarous, but as justifiably rough and fair. The majority of Dartmouth students reported that both teams were to blame for the aggressive play and that Princeton students were just angry because their superstar had gotten hurt. Boo-hoo. These Dartmouth students, they also recorded an equal number of infractions as did the other students at Princeton. They both recorded the same number of horrible incidents, but at Dartmouth, they marked half as many for their own side than did Princeton students. So the scientists, they explained what's happening here is that each person saw a different game despite the fact that all had watched the same film. Each person experienced a different version of the truth, each in some way adulterated by his allegiance. And the great lesson of Princeton versus Dartmouth, it concerns how tiny and arbitrary variations can change everything. The students who watched the film, regardless of whether they had attended the real event, experienced two different versions of reality. Even though on paper, they all seemed like nearly identical people. As students of male-only Ivy League schools 300 miles apart in the 1950s, they were the same ethnically and socioeconomically, and as undergraduates, they were all about the same age. As Northeastern U.S. citizens, they had similar cultural and religious beliefs. The only difference between them was which school they had chosen to attend. The research suggests that if you could turn back time and have those students enroll at different schools, switching the campuses they would later stroll, their realities would also have switched. If an almost arbitrary allegiance like that can so dramatically affect perception, imagine what else could. In his book, The Righteous Mind, Jonathan Haidt explains how predispositions affect our moral foundations and political perspectives. Here, he summarizes for Bill Moyers. Your research in the book organizes morality into six moral foundations or concerns. Sketch them briefly and tell me how liberals and conservatives mm -hmm. differ on each of them. Sure. So if you imagine each of our righteous minds as being like an audio equalizer with six slider switches, and the first one is care, compassion, those sorts of issues, liberals have it turned up to 11. And we have this on a lot of different surveys. Liberals really feel when they see an animal being mistreated, they're more likely to feel something than conservatives and especially than libertarians who are very, very low on this one. The next two, liberty and fairness. When liberty and fairness conflict with care, 
Are you going to punish someone or are you going to be compassionate? Liberals are more likely to go with care. In other words, care trumps liberty and fairness, even though everybody cares about all three of those. The next three, loyalty, authority, and sanctity, what we find across many questionnaires, many surveys, and analyses of texts and sermons, all sorts of things, is that liberals don't talk a lot about loyalty, group loyalty. They don't talk a lot about authority and the importance of order and authority and maintaining order. They don't talk a lot about sanctity. Conservatives, on the other hand, what we find is that they value all of these more or less equally. And I think this is part of the reason why conservatives have done a much better job of connecting with American morality and convincing people that they are the party of moral values. Height is not saying that this means that conservatives are right, but explaining how encompassing more of the moral spectrum allows conservatives to intuit, craft, and control more persuasive narratives in this domain. When I began this work, I was very much a liberal, and over time, in doing the research for my book and in reading a lot of conservative writing, I've come to believe that conservative intellectuals actually are more in touch with human nature. They have a more accurate view of human nature. We need structure, we need families, we need groups. It's okay to have memberships and rivalries. All that stuff is okay unless it crosses the threshold into manichaeism. So I think that it would be very difficult to run a good society without resting much on loyalty, authority, and sanctity. I think you need to use those. Liberals see some aspects of where the social system breaks down, and conservatives see others. You have to have consequences follow on bad behavior. That is as basic an aspect of system design as any. And that's one where conservatives see it much more clearly than liberals. And I think I'm a centrist in terms of liberal conservative, and I feel like I'm sort of stepped out of the game. And now that the game has gotten so deadly, I'm hoping that in the coming year, I can be the guy saying, come on, people, just here, understand the other side so you stop demonizing, and now you can argue more productively. Without being too reductionist, he sees these differences as somewhat inherent and long established. There is something constant about the left-right dimension psychologically. There are other dimensions that matter, but the left-right dimension is a real psychological dimension. There's a kind of a yin-yang thing going on. Actually, I just want to read you this wonderful quote from Bertrand Russell. He says, from 600 BC to the present day, philosophers have been divided into those who wish to tighten social bonds and those who wished to relax them. Social cohesion is a necessity, and mankind has never yet succeeded in enforcing cohesion by merely rational arguments. Every community is exposed to two opposite dangers, ossification through too much discipline and reverence for tradition on the one hand, and on the other hand, dissolution or subjection to foreign conquest through the growth of an individualism and personal independence that makes cooperation impossible. So this basic sort of yin-yang, you know, I'm going to tighten it up and have more, you know, family and structure and punishment and tradition and order, or we're going to loosen it up and give everyone freedom, have their own, you know, this dynamic, I think, does play out on both sides of the border. That dynamic to him is a valuable and necessary tension to us all as a whole, like yin and yang. Hyde explains why we benefit from both inclinations and perspectives. The answer, I think, is that they used every tool in the toolbox. It took all of our moral psychology to create these cooperative groups. Yes, you do need to be concerned about harm. You do need a psychology of justice. But it really helps to organize a group if you can have subgroups. And if those subgroups have some internal structure. And if you have some ideology that tells people to suppress their carnality, to pursue higher, nobler ends. And now we get to the crux of the disagreement between liberals and conservatives. Because liberals reject three of these foundations. They say, no, let's sell celebrate diversity, not common in group membership. They say, let's question authority, and they say, keep your laws off my body. Liberals have very noble motives for doing this. Traditional authority, traditional morality can be quite repressive and restrictive to those at the bottom, to women, to people that don't fit in. So liberals speak for the weak and oppressed. They want change and justice, even at the risk of chaos. If you're high in openness to experience, revolution is good, it's change, it's fun. Conservatives, on the other hand, speak for institutions and traditions. They want order, even at some cost, to those at the bottom. The great conservative insight is that order is really hard to achieve. It's really precious, and it's really easy to lose. 
lose. So as Edmund Burke said, the restraints on men, as well as their liberties, are to be reckoned among their rights. This was after the chaos of the French Revolution. So once you see this, once you see that liberals and conservatives both have something to contribute, that they form a balance on change versus stability, then I think the way is open to step outside the moral matrix. This is the great insight that all the Asian religions have attained. Think about yin and yang. Yin and yang aren't enemies. Yin and yang don't hate each other. Yin and yang are both necessary, like night and day, for the functioning of the world. You find the same thing in Hinduism. There are many high gods in Hinduism. Two of them are Vishnu, the preserver, Shiva, the destroyer. Both of those gods sharing the same body. So we could think of Vishnu as the conservative god, Shiva as the liberal god, and they work together. You find the same thing in Buddhism. These two stanzas contain, I think, the deepest insights that have ever been attained into moral psychology from the Zen master Sen San. If you want the truth to stand clear before you, never be for or against. The struggle between for and against is the mind's worst disease. Any longtime fan of the world's finest may intuit this in how Superman and Batman cooperate for good, but often come from differing or contrasting perspectives. Batman was born of the deliberate reversal of everything in the Superman dynamic. Superman was an alien with incredible powers. Batman was a human being with no superhuman abilities. Superman's costume was brightly colored. Batman's was grayscale and somber with mocking flashes of yellow. In his secret Clark Kent identity, Superman was a hard working farmer's son who grew up in small-town Kansas, while Batman's Bruce Wayne enjoyed life as a wealthy playboy, an East Coast sophisticate descended from old money. Clark had a boss, Bruce had a butler. Clark pined after Lois. Bruce burned through a string of debutantes and leading ladies. Superman worked alone. Batman had a boy partner, Robin. Superman was of the day. Batman was of the night and the shadows. Superman was rational, Apollonian. Batman was Dionysian. Superman's mission was the measured allotment of justice. Batman's an emotive, two-fisted, ask-questions-later vendetta. Superman's brand of essentially optimistic problem-solving found its cynical counterpart in Batman's obsessive, impossible quest to punch crime into extinction, one bastard at a time. Height holds that our early involuntary dispositions contribute considerably to our perceptions, a preference for a certain sort of morality, all else being equal. That preference then gets instantiated again and again into narratives and schema and priming until it's nearly impossible to see our own givens and assumptions having become entirely invisible to us. David Foster Wallace illustrates. There are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? If you're worried, please don't be. I am not the wise old fish. The point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. So isn't this something that the other immigrant, foreigner, alien, or outsider can show us to help us see and discuss? Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I always think that like, because much in the same way that Superman being from Krypton, it's easy for him to remind us what it is to be human because he's looking at us from the outside. I always feel like maybe that's the same case with like Henry grew up in England, you know, he comes here and he can show us ourselves maybe clearer than we can. Maybe I'm overthinking it, but it does feel like that's possible. I guess for me, those two elements were super important. The element of him being an alien and then the element of him being 
being a man, and those sound like a contradiction, but I feel like the fun of the movie is that he's more human than human because of the fact that he's an alien. He comes to Earth, and because he's an alien, he wants desperately all the things that we have naturally, right? Even though he's, he's got these powers, he still, in his heart, wants just to be loved by his parents, you know, which is a thing I think we all feel. And I think that that, as an opening, as a, as a beginning, allows you inside of Superman, maybe for the first time, you're looking at the world through his eyes rather than just looking at him up on screen. This is where the being a foreigner is a good thing comes in, where you go, hang on a second, I look at the Midwest and I see hardworking, honest people, honorable, honor, humble, and they are the real heroes. Let's go and celebrate them. Right. Not just for the rest of the world, but for America itself. I mean, the, the thing we foreigners do quite well is hold up a mirror and go, hey, look at this amazing place. I want to go and celebrate this. Mm -hmm. Yes, I guess it is. For perspective, consider that the United States accounts for only 5% of the world's population. One way to open your eyes to norms or frames or paradigms that you've taken for granted is to ask international students or your multicultural colleagues what adjustments that they had to make or adapt to in America, and you will get answers about personal space and contact, privacy and food, gestures, volume, interruption, and independence, confrontation, community, criticism, and cutting to the chase, and a dozen different ordinary norms you assume which are far from universal. A typical cultural misunderstanding at the very basic of human interactions. You've came into the personal space of someone who has a much bigger personal space and not understanding these very subtle physical differences with people will actually lead to a lot of miscommunication. If you want to observe it yourself, go to any international conference and try to observe a South American that tries to communicate with a North European. What will happen there is that the South American will be very eager and will stand at a distance that's comfortable for him. The North European will be also very eager but stand a little bit further away because he's not comfortable that the South American be so close. And if you observe it over time, you will see that there's a little dance that starts. <laughs> And people go around the room, none of them realizing that they are feeling uncomfortable, or they both feel uncomfortable, but they don't realize why. And it's just a simple thing of culture and being able to feel that distance between people, which is different in every culture. Professor Aaron Meyer, author of The Culture Map, gives another example of shifting perspectives. Just to give you an example of this, I worked with a British and a French team a while ago, and I asked the British at one point, what's it like to work with the French? And the British said to me, well, Aaron, you know the French, they're really chaotic, they're always late, they're really disorganized. A little bit later, I had a group from India who joined the same team, and I asked the Indians after a little while, what's it like to work with the French? And the Indians said to me, well, Aaron, you know the French, they're really rigid, they're really inadaptable, they're so focused on the structure and timeliness yes. of things that it's really unsettling for them if you change things at the last minute. So you have to understand that what you perceive about a culture might say more about you than the intrinsic qualities of that culture. Exactly. So in a sense, the big piece of advice you're giving is the hardest, which is know yourself. Know how you perceive things and how that is a bias that you need to try to overcome. And for good measure. And I will just say that I gave this same example in Germany a little while ago, and one of the Germans in the room said, well, you know, Aaron, this is a really funny example for us because we work with the British all the time, and we are always complaining that the British are exactly the same way that you've just described that the British complain about the French, right? 
Sometimes what seems similar and familiar is where we're the most blind, prone to assumption and taking things for granted. There's some research that shows that the highest failure rate when people are working with other countries is not between you know, the UK and China, but between the US and the UK. And this happens because people assume because we speak the same language, because we seem externally rather similar, that there are no cultural differences. We keep trying to push our own culture and that leads to the highest failure rates. So what I suggest is that people remember that even when they're working with cultures that seem very similar, they always need to be on the lookout for how these cultural differences are impacting their success. Exposure to different cultures can help us see our own assumptions. In fact, it was immersion into another culture that enabled Haidt's influential insight into his own. So I was overdetermined to be a liberal. I'm Jewish from New York, went to an Ivy League school, went into academics and psychology, and everybody around me was liberal. And it was always very clear, liberals are the good people, conservatives are the bad people. They're just racist, greedy capitalists, et cetera, et cetera. And it was in graduate school that I began really studying India, actually, traditional Indian society and trying to understand the virtues they were pursuing, the really family-based, hierarchical, sex-segregated, all that sort of stuff. And I tried my best and I was able to see that they're actually pursuing some virtues of self-control and interdependence that I thought could be beautiful in a way. When I came home, suddenly the religious right made more sense to me. The left is all convinced, okay, now finally, you know, the Republicans stole the election last time, but this time we're going to win. And when they didn't win, American liberals were just stunned. Like, how could this have happened? How could it be that Americans actually like these Republicans. And they generally assumed it was just trickery. The Republicans are good at tricking people into voting against their self-interest. And I used everything I knew about moral psychology, looking at India versus the U.S., and applied it to left versus right. And it worked beautifully. The same kind of sort of binding virtues that you find in India that bind groups together and structure them are much more valued among conservatives. And liberals have this more individualistic, don't weigh people down with responsibility. So anyway, in trying to make sense of conservatives, I actually found, after reading a lot of conservative material, that a lot of it made sense. They were right about a lot of things. Liberals are right about a lot of things. And gradually, it took a while to admit it publicly, but I became a centrist. You actually studied in India. You were a young, liberal, academic. That's right. I was working with an anthropologist, uh, Richard Schwader, at the University of Chicago. So I went to India to observe, to do some experiments. And this was uh, 1993, and Bill Clinton had been elected, and I was overjoyed. I loved Clinton. And the religious right was getting ever more active. The culture war was heating up. But here I was, trying to pretend I was an anthropologist, and I was in this incredibly sex-segregated, hierarchical, religious society. I mean, sort of analogous to what we might think of as the kind of world the Christian right wants to build in America. Now, in America, I could just see all the terrible things about that. But here I was in India, these people were being really nice to me, and I was there to understand them. And as I developed relationships with them, I wasn't just confirming my old biases. I was actually listening to them and trying to see it from their point of view. And I could see some beauty in it. Beauty in? Well, we have an ethos here of extreme individual expression. So for example, here's one of the questions that most distinguishes nations on our Moral Foundations questionnaire. It is more important to be a team player than to express yourself. Liberals say, no, it's more important to express yourself. But conservatives and Indians and Asians in general would say it's more important to be a team player. So the ethos of, I have my rights and my desires, I mean, that's a quintessentially American and even more liberal than conservative sort of thing. So I could at least see an ethos in which the individual is not 
not so all important. The group, the family, order, responsibility, duty are. If you came back thinking, well, maybe the religious right in this country is not crazy Exactly. That's right. Once I could see it in India, I came back, and I did a little more reading, and now I at least had a vocabulary, and I had the intuitions. That's the crucial thing. I had the intuitions of what this is all about. It just made a lot more sense to me. Not that I became a conservative, but suddenly the demonization was gone. The switch had just turned off, and I could look at it. Didn't I reason my way to my new position? Well, a lot of it comes from personal relationships. It's not that I was in a liberal bubble and just did a lot of reading and said, oh, by logic, they're right. Really, the stepping out of the Matrix moment, for those who know the movie The Matrix, that was because people were really nice to me in India. I didn't like their values when I arrived, but they were really nice to me, and I was trying to fit in, and I was trying to be charitable, and I was grateful for all the help they were giving me. So in a way, they opened my heart first, and that allowed me, for the first time, to think about conservative values without just dismissing them. So I don't think I simply reasoned my way to it. And if I did reason my way to it, it took 15 years from that time in India to the time where I could call myself a centrist. I mean, I did a lot of reading. You can't just give people some arguments and say, here, read this, now change. Hmm. So embedded in that story are a lot of positive principles. It shows that openness and grace can foster understanding and that exposure to others, while there is mutual respect and charity, can bring about change and seeing value in others. And that becomes applicable wisdom that you can extend to others, an experience in India allowing him to see his fellow Americans more charitably. And finally, that this transformation was not accomplished through a stunning argument or sudden logic, but a gradual change of the heart. Much of this could be attributed to Haidt going to India as, first and foremost, an anthropologist, to observe and understand, rather than impose his psychological dogma onto others, critiquing them according to his own pre-existing schema. Grant Morrison makes a similar observation in his book, Super gods. I felt that I was onto something more concrete and less rooted in abstraction or theory. The fictional universe I was interacting with was as real as our own, and as I began to think of the DC universe as a place, it occurred to me that there were two ways to approach it, as a missionary or as an anthropologist. I chose to see writers as missionaries who attempted to impose their own values and preconceptions on cultures they considered inferior, in this case, that of the superheroes. Anthropologists on the other hand, surrendered themselves to foreign cultures. They weren't afraid to go native or look foolish. They came and they departed with respect and in the interests of mutual understanding. Naturally, I wanted to be an anthropologist. Caricature of these careers aside, his point still stands. Instead of the imposition of one's own preconceptions onto a piece, the organic interaction with it as it is allows for us to come away with the most value. It allows us to see the intentions, aspirations, and achievements as they actually are, instead of being blinded by what we thought they should or ought to be. Of course, our preconceptions are often invisible to us after a lifetime of being immersed in our own culture, or country, taken for granted as diamond absolutes, any deviation as abominable heresies, ironclad propositions without ever knowing why, because we can't consider what we've taken for granted. It robs us of being able to see the value in others, and sometimes the value that we can bring as well. For this next segment, let's look at language. Language is such an important part of who we are as humans. Uh, We take it completely for granted. It's like the air that we breathe. 
that was linguist Lyra Boroditsky, drawing the same conclusion that your language and speech can easily act as that invisible water, that ever-present air, to solely native speakers. It's easy to take the givens and assumptions of our linguistic environment for granted, but by looking at another culture or another language, we can gain another lens for thought and perception. You know, I was doing some reading about this idea that if you immerse yourself into a foreign language that you can actually rewire your brain. The Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Hmm. It's the theory that uh, the language you speak determines how you think and... Yeah, it affects how you see everything. That was the 2016 film Arrival, based on the novella by Ted Chiang. Arrival has entrenched the idea into popular culture, but it's been a matter of debate for ages. That begs the question, does the language we speak shape the way we think? Now, this is an ancient question. People have been speculating about this question for forever. Charlemagne, Holy Roman Emperor, said, to have a second language is to have a second soul. Strong statement that language crafts reality. But on the other hand, Shakespeare has Juliet say, what's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Well, that suggests that maybe language doesn't craft reality. These arguments have gone back and forth for thousands of years. But until recently, there hasn't been any data to help us decide either way. Recently, in my lab and other labs around the world, we've started doing research, and now we have actual scientific data to weigh in on this question. So let me tell you about some of my favorite examples. I'll start with an example from an Aboriginal community in Australia that I had a chance to work with. These are the Kuktaur people. And what's cool about Kuktaur is in Kuktaur, they don't use words like left and right. And instead, everything is in cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. And when I say everything, I really mean everything. You would say something like, oh, there's a, an ant on your southwest leg, or move your cup to the north, northeast a little bit. In fact, the way that you say hello in Kuktaur is you say, which way are you going? And the answer should be north, northeast, in the far distance. How about you? So imagine as you're walking, Walking around your day, every person you greet, you have to report your heading direction. <laughs> that would actually get you oriented pretty fast, right? Because you literally couldn't get past hello if you didn't know which way you were going. In fact, people who speak languages like this stay oriented really, really well. They stay oriented better than we used to think humans could. We used to think that humans were worse than other creatures because some biological excuse, oh, we don't have magnets in our beaks or in our scales. No. If your language and your culture trains you to do it, actually, you can do it. There are humans around the world who stay oriented really well. You can imagine other linguistic orientations embedded into culture. Whereas they know direction, in English, we use tenses to orientate ourselves in time. In many East Asian languages, there is a specific term for every kind of family relation. For example, instead of the generic term for aunt or uncle, you'd use a term which pinpoints which side of the family and their birth order, increasing one orientation within the family tree. In the unabridged talk, she provides additional examples of the impact of linguistic differences in counting colors, gender, and even causation. Languages also differ in how they describe events. So you take an event like this, an accident. In English, it's fine to say he broke the vase. In a language like Spanish, you might be more likely to say the vase broke or the vase broke itself. If it's an accident, you wouldn't say that someone did it. In English, quite weirdly, we can even say things like I broke my arm. Now, in lots of languages, you couldn't use that construction unless you are a lunatic and you went out looking to break your 
arm and you succeeded, right? If it was an accident, you would use a different construction. Now, this has consequences. People who speak different languages will pay attention to different things depending on what their language usually requires them to do. So we show the same accident to English speakers and Spanish speakers. English speakers will remember who did it because English requires you to say, he did it, he broke the vase. Where Spanish speakers might be less likely to remember who did it if it's an accident, but they're more likely to remember that it was an accident. They're more likely to remember the intention. So two people watch the same event, witness the same crime, but end up remembering different things about that event. This has implications, of course, for eyewitness testimony. It also has implications for blame and punishment. So if you take English speakers and I just show you someone breaking a vase and I say, he broke the vase, as opposed to I say, the vase broke, even though you can witness it yourself, you can watch the video, you can watch the crime against the vase, you will punish someone more, you will blame someone more if I just said he broke it, as opposed to it broke. The language guides our reasoning about events. And so she concludes. Now, I've given you a few examples of how language can profoundly shape the way we think, and it does so in a variety of ways. I want to leave you with this final thought. I've told you about how speakers of different languages think differently, but of course, that's not about how people elsewhere think. It's about how you think. It's how the language that you speak shapes the way that you think. And that gives you the opportunity to ask, why do I think the way that I do? How could I think differently? And also, what thoughts do I wish to create? Thank you very much. I know personally from speaking seven plus languages myself that every language I speak, I feel like I'm a different person. Every language I speak, I feel like it's reflecting a different part of myself. And I feel like I'm different when I speak each one. And I think that normally people who speak several languages do get this feeling. When you speak a different language, you feel different. Just the world is different somehow. And that's one of the wonderful things about learning languages is that not only does it, in a sense, enhance yourself because it makes you more able to get experiences from different things in the world and to empathize with different ways of thinking, but also it just just means you turn into more people. It's like you become more multifaceted every time you do it. I think there's some sort of saying like the more languages you learn, the more people you become. And that really is true. While Arrival is the sci-fi account of the effect, there are countless real-world examples and experience measuring the effect as well. Here's one regarding saving money. The language we speak affects much of how we understand the world, and probably in more ways than you think. Keith Chen is a professor of economics at UCLA, and he's been studying some examples of this. He has found that the way language is structured can influence our eating habits, our likelihood of smoking, even the way we spend or save our money. Keith Chen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, it's exciting to be here. So explain how this works. Broken down, what it really, really comes down to is that languages differ to the degree that they force you, when you speak them, to pay attention to the difference between the future and the present. In English, we have the past tense, I ran. We have the present progressive, I'm running. But we don't have a future form, rin, right? There's no kind of future run. But we do have kind of a necessary, obligatory form, we will run, okay? I can't say tomorrow it rain, right? I have to say tomorrow it will rain. Okay. So flip all the way to the other side, and there are languages, many Many, many languages on the planet which are effectively futureless. So languages like Finnish and languages like Mandarin Chinese, you literally in Mandarin Chinese say, it rained tomorrow. So the critical difference here is whether when you're speaking a particular language, it forces you every time you're thinking about a future event to note in your head and to speak as if that future is something viscerally and grammatically different than the present. What does that say about our habits? When people speak a futureless language, they talk about future events as if 
if they're the present. If your grammar puts the future and the present on equal footing, it appears as if you're more willing to put the future and the present on equal footing in your decision making. And that kind of subtle distinction, my research shows, appears to have kind of psychological effects as well. Countries whose languages grammatically associate the future and the present save almost 5% more of their GDP per year. And that's over great swaths of time. So what are the practical implications of this research? Imagine two families that have exactly the same number of children. The heads of households are exactly the same age. They've gotten exactly the same number of years of education, have the same type of college degree. They find themselves in the same income decile. They live within miles of each other. But the languages that these two families speak at home, one of these languages equates the future and the present, and one of these languages separates the future and the present in their grammar. Now, even after all of this granular level of control, do futureless language speakers seem to save more? Yes. Futurist language speakers, even after this level of control, are 30% more likely to report having saved in any given year. Does this have cumulative effects? Yes. By the time they retire, futurist language speakers holding constant their income are going to retire with 25% more in savings. Can we push this data even further? Yes. Think about smoking, for example. Smoking is in some deep sense negative savings, right? If savings is current pain in exchange for future pleasure, smoking is just the opposite. It's current pleasure in exchange for future pain. What we should should expect then is the opposite effect. And that's exactly what we find. Futureless language speakers are 20 to 24% less likely to be smoking in at a given point in time compared to identical families. And they're going to be 13 to 70% less likely to be obese by the time they retire. I could go on and on with the list of differences that you can find. It's almost impossible not to find a savings behavior for which this strong effect isn't present. And here's another one, orienting time and space. Like this set of experiments playing on the difference between how English and Mandarin speakers use space to talk about time. Earlier is to your left and later to your right in English. But in Mandarin, things can get vertical. Earlier is up and later down. Even though these experiments were conducted entirely in English, native Mandarin speakers were quicker to answer simple questions about earlier or later after being primed with vertical cues, while native English speakers were faster after horizontal cues. Thinking about time, it seemed, was shaped by language. So we've talked about time, money, orientation, and more. Language can be central to our identities. Roland Bach, the French philosopher, says, if you do not have a language, you must steal it as men steal bread. One way to think about the impact of language on thought is as an effect on the availability heuristic. Information that's readily available primes us to think along those lines. So if our language provides a gender for an object, we may describe it in stereotypically gendered terms, or consider the inclination towards context for those who speak Chinese. Chinese is laden with homophones, which requires attention to context to derive meaning on a much more frequent basis than in English. English. Accordingly, Chinese speakers are continually aware of, prompted, and primed to consider context, whether in observation, communication, or cognition, or vice versa. Either way, there's an observable correlation between culture and cognition, and that was leveraged in Man of Steel to create a truly alien culture's conlang, or constructed language, of Kryptonian. Dr. Christine Schreier, linguistic anthropologist and creator of Man of Steel's Kryptonian, and production designer Alex McDowell. 
from the backstory of this movie that I was told, the people are very selfish at this point in time. And so that was something that I focused on for the language. Also, there's a long history of the objects. There are some basic rules for the way language is developed. And one of those is what is the cultural emphasis and impetus for the language? So in English, it's all about me, right? So I want an apple is the way that the language is structured. What we said about Krypton was that they are object-oriented. They fetishize the object. So in this case, it's apple want and so you put the object first. So that sort of set in motion a bunch of rules for the language. As we'll learn next episode, object orientation in language correlates with categorical cognition. As your language revolves around objects and things, you become concerned with categories, characteristics, and constants. Conceptually, everything is concrete, contained, fixed, discrete, describable, and definable. Things are what they are. Thought, therefore, tends towards certainty and absolutes. If you comb through the dialogue of our Kryptonian characters, you'll see that they say everything with conviction and full sincerity. There is almost no nuance, hesitation, or pretense. Everything is out on the table all the time, full tilt. Things are what they are. And when you become sensitive to that, you understand that this isn't an individual matter of being stilted, overdramatic, or arrogant, but a common cultural characteristic of Kryptonians. Once you account for culture, their individual personalities become more clear, and your own cultural context is more apparent. We get this more from Krypton than, say, Atlantis, the Amazons, or even Shazam, who all share our ancient Greek culture and linguistic roots. Now what if, instead of a focus on objects, a language was more verb-forward, focused on action, change, and interaction, cause and effect, relationships and connections, transformation and influence on systems. The whole dynamic picture of constantly moving parts, too complicated to define, describe, or capture, how might that change your cognition or unconscious priors? Our automatic system one saves itself the effort by retrieving the recently or commonly available. So the way you always think affects the way you always think. <laughs> this is one way of thinking about our next topic, a cognitive bias known as the fundamental attribution error. Now that's a mouthful, so you'll forgive me if I abbreviate that as F-A-E sometimes, okay? <laughs> when we're trying to understand why people act like villains or heroes, one of the things we're really asking is, did they do what they did because of their personality or their situation? Austrian psychologist Fritz Heider began plumbing the depths of this question in the 1920s when he was developing what's now known as the attribution theory. This theory simply suggests that we can explain someone's behavior by crediting either their stable, enduring traits, also known as their disposition, or the situation at hand. And we tend to attribute people's behavior to either one or the other. Sounds pretty simple, but it can be surprisingly hard to tell whether someone's behavior is dispositional or situational. Overestimating the forces of personality while underestimating the power of the situation is called the fundamental attribution error. And as you can imagine, making this kind of error can really end up warping your opinion opinion of another person and lead to false snap judgments. Okay, so put simply, it is the tendency to attribute the behavior of others to disposition rather than situation or circumstance. The classic example is assuming that anyone who cuts us off is a bad driver or a bad person. Effectively, lasting characteristics or dispositions, they always drive poorly or they are always a malicious driver. The effect is reversed with respect to our own bad behavior, in part because of the availability heuristic. Our thoughts, motives, experiences, and history up to that moment are known and available to us, so we judge ourselves differently. When we cut someone off, it's situational or circumstance, a momentary 
momentary lapse of understandable distraction beyond our control, an emergency or urgency that required this particular action. We never drive poorly or with bad intentions. This time was an exception. This is a strong and well-studied effect, coined by Lee Ross, collaborating with Richard Nisbet, and like many psychological phenomenon, long observed. In works of love, Soren Kierkegaard wrote, Most men are subjective towards themselves and objective towards all others, fightfully objective sometimes. But the task is precisely to be objective towards oneself and subjective towards all others. Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments also proposes the idea of observing ourselves as impartial spectators so as to muster up the restraint to dampen our emotions. Self-command, he called it. Nonetheless, the effect is found to be particularly strong among Americans. We dismiss the possibility of ever being caught in such an ethical blunder or dilemma ourselves. But if we think about it... We realize that good people do bad things all the time. Good people are subject to many psychological tendencies and organizational pressures that influence human decision-making. Things such as the desire to please authority and to be part of a team, the vulnerability to role morality and incrementalism, the often overwhelming self-serving bias and the like. And we all tend to be overconfident in our own ethicality. Indeed, 92% of Americans say they are satisfied with their moral character. And 80% or so of us just know that we're more ethical than our peers. If this overconfidence makes us too cocky, we may be blindsided by the fundamental attribution error and become one of the many good people who do bad things every day. And that can lead to mistakes. The FAE is specifically the fact that studies show we tend to overestimate how well their disposition will predict future behavior, and we tend to underestimate how much their situation will predict future behavior. So exactly how badly miscalibrated are we? In fact, we are way, way off in our intuitions. Quote, in actual fact, when large numbers of people are observed in a wide range of situations, the correlation for trait-related behavior runs about 0.20 or less. People think the correlation is around 0.80. In reality, seeing Carlos behave more honestly than Bill in a given situation increases the likelihood he will behave more honestly in another situation from the chance level of 50% to the vicinity of 55 to 57%. People think that if Carlos behaves more honestly than Bill in one situation, the likelihood he'll behave more honestly than Bill in another situation is 80%. (laughs) So that's like hugely off the mark. Notice what the actual data are. The correlation is 0.15. Correlations between any two behaviors that can be construed as indicators of a person's value on a particular personality trait almost never correlate with one another better than 0.2. Typically, it's more like 0.1. If the correlation is 0.15, that means you're going from what a coin flip or 50-50, but if you observed her in one situation, the likelihood that you'll be able to make that prediction accurately goes up to about 0.56. It hardly goes up at all. Take you a very long time to notice you're making serious errors all the time. People think if Jane is friendlier than Joan in situation number one, that odds are 80% that she'll be friendlier in situation number two. I mean... (laughs) That is spectacularly badly calibrated with reality. And we make these mistakes every single day. I mean, we're constantly not making friends we could have made because Joe seemed kind of like a jerk when I met him at the party. I mean, 
But according to one study of college students, seven in ten women report that men have misread their polite friendliness, which would be appropriate for the situation, as a sexual come-on. We choose how we explain other people's behavior every day, and what we choose to believe can have big consequences. For example, our political views will likely be strongly influenced by whether we decide to attribute poverty or homelessness to personal dispositions, like being lazy and looking for a handout, or social circumstances, like lack of education and opportunity. And these attitudes can in turn affect our actions. Activists and politicians know this well, and they can use it to their advantage to persuade people in different ways. But by adopting the stance of an impartial spectator, or even an advocate of our opposition, we can become more charitable in our assessment. Here, Henry Cavill is generously gracious to his childhood bullies. Did they bully you at school? Did they call you fatty those way um, back when? Uh, fat Cavill was the actual name. But you know what? I was fat. And my name was still Cavill then, so it was a fairly fitting nickname. Cruel, but kids are cruel, you know. It, it's, yeah. um, at that age, kids are stretching their social muscles. And yeah. I don't think it's malicious, necessarily. Yeah. They're just pushing their boundaries socially. Yeah. And they're trying to work out where they fit and where everyone else around them fit, and especially in boarding school. But I don't hold any grudges. And the, one of the terrible things about bullies is that they're bullies for a reason. And it's probably because they're getting bullied. And from a far more dangerous place than a kid in school, potentially. Note the facts of the event did not change, but Cavill is spared perpetual bitterness towards his bullies by not judging their dispositions as inherent. Rather than be preoccupied with himself, Cavill considers the origins of their attitudes and extends compassion and understanding to his bullies, instead of condemnation. So if the fundamental attribution error causes one to make dispositional attributions, it also implies the inclination towards fixed dispositions. The bias would have less impact categorizing people as bad drivers or bad people if we're inclined to think that those are fluid traits that change or transient reflections of circumstance. We've already talked a ton about fixed mindsets compared to growth mindset, so I'm just making a mention here. Instead, I want to pivot to a proven and observed effect regarding authors. And I guess we can start with actors, that we will tend to ascribe dispositions to actors despite knowing situational factors. Namely, we tend to believe actors are like the characters that they play, even knowing that they are roles that they're paid to play. You see a character behave one way one time, you assume this is indicative of that character's fundamental dispositions, their beliefs, traits, values, abilities, attitudes, and not just some situation they're in. And I guess it's sort of like assuming that an actor who plays a villain in a movie is actually a bad person. <laughs> you know, there's a certain logic to it. Like when you've seen somebody play a villain in a movie, you can understand what it would look and feel like for them to actually be a bad person. With somebody else, it might be harder for you to picture this. Yeah. More specifically, this has been observed with regard to authors. Even knowing that their work was assigned, evaluators would attribute the author with having the positions themselves personally. So this first study was in 1967 by Edward E. Jones and Victor A. Harris called The Attribution of Attitudes in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology. So what happened here? Imagine you are a test subject. I invite you to come into a room and read an essay that I tell you is written by a student on a debate team. And the student who wrote the speech was randomly assigned the role of being either for or against against legalization. So you read the speech, and then I ask you, what do you think is the debate team member's actual personal view on the legalization of marijuana? The mere fact that they wrote an essay in favor of legalization, in fact, it doesn't tell you anything here, because you know that their position was assigned randomly. And this study by Jones and Harris in 1967 found that, more often than not, people tended to assume a writer actually privately held the beliefs that they were expressing. While the experiment by Jones and Harris was the first 
first. This study has been replicated in countless flavors since, and its effects are robustly observed. And so there has been a ton of other research over the years that has found similar things, like Corin in 1993 found that when a professor discusses an idea or a belief in a classroom lecture, students tend to assume that the professor personally holds that belief or agrees with that idea. I think a great example here would be like Freudianism, because you really can't talk about the history of psychology without talking about Freud, and yet nobody should just like take Freud's word as like science on psychology these days. So if a professor in psychology class brings up Freud on some other subject, the professor will probably think, I'm giving the students historical context on this topic. But the students may be more likely to think that the professor is mentioning a view because they advocate or they agree with it. They're assuming it's part of the professor's disposition. Okay, another study from 1979 this time by Napolitan and Gerthels called The Attribution of Friendliness. This did something kind of like the essays thing, except they just had people meet. You'd meet somebody and you get to decide, is this person friendly or unfriendly? Now, some of the people in the study who you were getting to meet had been told that they were supposed to act unfriendly. And then the participants were told, oh, this person has been told they need to act unfriendly. And yet some of the participants would actually rate the person as fundamentally unfriendly, even though they'd been told by experimenters that the person had been assigned this behavior pattern. Applied to filmmakers, the bias inclines us to believe that the filmmaker is always a proponent of their subject. That may be the case, of course, but the point of the bias is that we assume it even when it's not. A common confusion of the critics is that if BVS features a broken bad or conflicted Clark, then that is the preference, outlook, and endorsement of the filmmakers. That this is a permanent disposition, as opposed to circumstantial situation, such as being the first few films in a larger and longer arc. The critic assumes that the film's content must be the message of the filmmaker as well. BVS is filled with misunderstanding, miscommunication, and judging from afar because it is an observation of those issues, not an endorsement. Superman slaying Zod isn't encouraging the adoption of lethal force in all instances. Tolkien didn't scour the Shire because he likes to see the industrial war complex pollute green groves. Depiction is not endorsement. How hard is it to allow artists cautionary tales, nuance, and commentary without immediately ascribing affiliation, allegiance, or agreement. <laughs> Pretty hard, it seems, given the bias and given the criticism. Now, filmmakers can speak for themselves beyond the scope of their films, if they so choose. They can, of course, plainly state their positions, endorsements, critiques, or whatever else. But in the absence of such expression, we ought to check our vulnerability to erroneous attribution before assigning beliefs or positions to authors or filmmakers on assumption. It is not the author's obligation to dispel or deny your assumptions either. These thoughts, inferences, and accusations are your own, so you must own them, not shift the responsibility to the filmmakers to clarify for some other sake. Of course, there are and can be consequences to those accusations and assumptions which the silent must be wary of, but if they are willing to bear it, they are entitled to their silence. No one is entitled to hear Superman talk, and no one is entitled to hear a filmmaker's answer or explanation. They are not slaves to public opinion, unless they choose to be. So setting aside my sideways rant on things 
remains unsaid but meant, much of our lack of empathy, lack of charity, and judgments of others can be attributed to some variation of our proclivity to fall afoul the fundamental attribution error. It's oft said that this Superman is gloomy, moody, broody, or hyperviolent, despite it mostly being the world and its context, a situation that elicits such reaction. Even if I were to put aside objections to such characterizations to begin with, is attributed to Superman's fundamental and permanent disposition in error. Audiences susceptible to the fundamental attribution error stick with their impressions if they don't get to know Superman beyond a superficial level, or are spoon-fed, as in literally shown, the alternatives which their imaginations lack. But subjects were less likely to make the fundamental attribution error and assume that one data point was indicative of a person's real disposition if they got to interact with the same person twice. Now, this obviously seems related to the general finding that the better we know a person, the more we take into account situational information to explain their behaviors, and the less we know a person, the more likely we are to resort to dispositional reasoning. You're probably at the highest risk to commit the FAE when evaluating a stranger or somebody you're meeting for the first time. To those who need to see, who can't imagine or empathize, had those additional instances been shown, a character get engaged, get married, become a husband and then father, become a teammate and leader, and so on. In most cases, the fundamental attribution error would be less likely to be applied. Ironically, most mainstream movies are trying to induce the fundamental attribution error intentionally. They want every split-second first impression to be wholly representative of characterization, so when you brand the character with your assumptions, it's in line with the actual disposition. The way that most fiction condenses characterization is almost the opposite of our actual everyday experience of others, foreigners, strangers, etc. I'll spare you the research on the ineffectiveness of job interviews in correlating with performance or the accuracy of first impressions, but instead taken aside for a creative thinking or writing exercise. Since so much of the FAE is a failure of availability or access it can be combated by modeling, seeing, or imagining alternatives so that your first instinct is less dispositional. Here are a few prompts to practice forming DC film character dialogue interaction models. The premise is generally the same. Continue or complete the scene, dialogue, or conversation characters had off-camera. For example, continue the conversation between Wallace Keefe and Lex in his apartment until the point that Wally's on board to approach Senator Finch. What has to be said? What do they need to do? What are the logistics? Work it through. Another example, continue Finch's conversation with Keefe to the point that she's making press conferences with him at her side. You can imagine the conversations between Jor-El and Lara deciding to conceive naturally. Or you could finish Senator Finch's opening statement and what was the truth she intended to tell. You can draft Superman's response and the rest of the hearing. And you can imagine Clark calling Martha to make arrangements about the ring, and so on. If you exercise empathy instead of an agenda, your vision will ring true and reveal necessary logistics, motivations, emotions, and characterization. If there's nothing there but a void, either the characters are incomplete, the logic of the situation is impossible or inconceivable, or your imagination could use some practice. Now if there is something, but it doesn't ring true, more likely than not, you've imposed either an agenda or an errant construction onto your imagination unnecessarily. This is a common issue with 
alleged plot hole based criticism, insisting that there is one and only one way that anyone could or would behave in a given situation. And that narrow minded insistence results in some ridiculous criticism. All right, thanks for indulging my side. Let's get back to it. So, if fiction forces the FAE and real life isn't fiction, doesn't that have deleterious effects on our interactions with others? I do not want to make it sound like I am attributing Hollywood with all of society's woes or blaming uh, superhero movies in particular. But I think it is worth noting that the Hollywood screenwriter approach yeah. and, and that being focused on individuals. You know, of course, Hollywood is epicenter for our, our focus on celebrities, to focus on these key individuals that we've singled out for deification and vilification, mm-hmm. to lift up and to sacrifice as need be to satiate our need for some sort of vicarious experience. I wonder you know, what the dangers are in, in, in putting that much cultural power within a single system. Well, especially one that, as we talked about, is very often given to the fundamental attribution error. I mean, like, I think a lot of, especially the weaker, shallower kinds of, you know, popular Hollywood storytelling very much fall into the FAE kind of category where Mm -hmm. characters' behaviors are almost entirely explained by their, like, innate qualities and predispositions. And there's really not much attention paid to, like, broader trends and societal pressures and circumstances that change the way people are. Right. And with superheroes, and I do, again, I want to stress that I enjoy superheroes superhero movies, and I'm not meaning to criticize them just across the board, but superhero movies are movies about individuals that are essentially gods. Mm-hmm. They may have flawed characteristics and even very human characteristics in some ways, which can, of course, be very much in keeping with classical treatments of gods, but they are individuals that apply pressure more to society or seem to be you know, completely removed from societal pressure in some cases. Mm-hmm. And when those are the dominant stories that we're telling, those are the ones that seem to have the most cultural impact and certainly have the, you know, the most box office impact. Does that just uh, serve to help reinforce the fundamental attribution error in our popular storytelling? I think that you could very well make that case. I think that's likely true. If we're the hero of our own stories, doesn't that just make everyone else extras, enemies, obstacles, or the occasional angel under a halo effect? Might we be too quick to judge, act on impulse, rely on disinformation, and do without facts, much less all of them? Oh hey, have I just cited to that summary of a BBS theme by producer Kurt Kanemoto? (laughs) Why, yes I did. The issue with such early and pernicious permanent judgment is that it allows us to condition ourselves to attach ever-increasing irrational responses to that judgment. For example, disgust. Internationally acclaimed philosopher Martha Nasbaum. You've written that disgust is a dangerous social sentiment. What does she mean by that? The harm comes when, and this happens in every single society, people project that disgust reaction onto some group of people. It seems to be a way that people have of cordoning themselves off yet further from the base parts of their own animality to create a subgroup to whom they impute these properties. Sliminess, ooziness, bad smell, and they treat those people as people we really can't have contact with. So the idea of untouchability in the Indian caste system is a very obvious instance of that. Certain people, and they were the people who dealt with waste products and corpses, are thought to be contaminating. So you can't eat food served by such a person. You can't have bodily contact with such a person. Well, I'm afraid that this is very widespread. American racism in the South was propelled by very similar views, so that people thought they could not eat at the same lunch counter with an African American. They found that prospect 
disgusting. They could not swim in the same swimming pool. They would not drink from the same drinking fountain. My father, who was a very educated lawyer, partner in a Philadelphia law firm, came from the Deep South, and he actually believed if an African-American person had had a drink of water from a particular drinking glass, you could not use that glass again afterwards. It was contaminated. This kind of magical thinking is characteristic of what I call projective disgust. The oozing and odors she describes falls into what's called primary disgust, typically tied to body and senses and aversion to some sort of contamination because of bodily products, organic dangers, and the like, without getting too graphic. It should be noted that these are not wholly objective or just sensory distaste. The classic example is that the context of an odor can be appealing if said to be cheese and revolting if said to be socks. Projective disgust is tying some property of another person or group to some sense of primary disgust. We can see Superman's critics do this in BVS when they tend to tie him to blood, something unclean and unintended to be seen outside the body. They need to see the fraud you are with their eyes. The blood on your hands. You know, this is flesh and blood. He is not a hero. And we see how Batman's disgust allows him to dehumanize Superman. You are never a god. You are never even a man. Note that this is an issue of narrative and not facts, logic, or rationality. A common complaint about BVS is that Batman's vendetta against Superman is erroneous because Batman is the world's greatest detective, a master of deduction and logic, supremely intelligent and rational. Their point being that a person with all these features can't fall prey to their passions. Indeed, it's interesting that such analysis often omits Lex Luthor. At the very least, Batman's peer in intelligence and privy to as many facts, if not more, but we're less disturbed by his wrongness because we've already dismissed him as dispositionally evil. But for otherwise good people, we mistakenly believe that if only they were more rational, more informed, more logical, then they'd, of course, come to the right conclusion. This belief, known as the rationality hypothesis, has unfortunately been disproven in study after study. Professor Dan Kahan teaches law and psychology at Yale Law School. Right. And the idea is that how can two people see the exact same thing and have totally opposite conclusions? And that's actually seeing things with your own eyes. But cultural cognition isn't limited to that. So if you show people data from an experiment, they'll do the same thing. They'll construe it in a way that fits their cultural group's position on the issue. And if it's a hard kind of problem to solve, the people who are going to be best at it are going to be people who are high in science comprehension. But they're also the ones who are most likely to get the answer wrong if the implication of the evidence is contrary to what their political or cultural group believes. So according to the public irrationality thesis, the better you are at understanding science generally, the more you should get the quote-unquote right answer, right? But this isn't what you see. It depends on what your values are. Yeah, so the public irrationality thesis, again, like you say, it attributes controversies uh, to the inability of people to understand the technical arguments. If that were true, then you would expect people who belong to opposing groups to converge as their science comprehension became more and more acute, but that doesn't happen. The opposite happens. People become more divided. Right. And this is not something confined to any side or position. The dynamics we're describing here, they really don't discriminate. They're going to affect people of all cultural and political groups. It's not a problem that only one side of the political spectrum has. 
these kinds of people that hold different beliefs than I do, for example, we've really misread them and we've labeled them as dumb or ignorant and irrational, right? But I really like the way that you put it, that it's not a deficit of rationality, but it's really an excess of it. Yeah. Instead, it appears to be an issue of identity, ironically, intuitively calculated in a rational fashion. Kahan's explanation is a little long, so I'll summarize. Basically, the societal costs of contradicting their faction are more concretely felt and paid by the person than the impact of conflicting with concrete facts. In an arguable sense, the science is what it is, so no amount of their agreement will ever change or impact that. Conversely, going against their in-group can result in a serious loss of community capital. They can get ostracized, criticized, and even excommunicated. So at that point, it's actually easier to maintain contradictory contextual beliefs than either of the alternatives. People can kind of hold two contradictory beliefs at the same time. And uh, you've written about this a little bit and described it as the Kentucky farmer, basically. Who is the Kentucky farmer and what does he believe? We call this position cognitive dualism. And the idea is that people have beliefs that are context or role specific. Basically, beliefs are how we manage to do things. They prompt us to do things that we think are consistent with our interest. And sometimes people have a variety of interests, some of which are served by beliefs consistent with what science knows, and some of which aren't. Farmers are among the most conservative members of society, probably after political affiliation. Being a farmer is going to predict better than anything else, whether you're climate skeptic. But they also use climate science more in their everyday lives than just about any other segment of society. So they engage in no-till farming, which is a way to assure that the soil will be robust in the event of droughts. I mean, they tell you it's because of climate change. They have changed the kinds of crops that they grow in some region, from corn to soybeans, and they tell you, well, that's because the climate is changing, and it turns out that the new climate is more congenial to growing soybeans than corn. They also buy more crop failure insurance, and they'll tell you that's because climate change has made the weather conditions more volatile. So in one part of their life, the one that is essential to group membership, they're going to not believe in climate change because that's the kind of position people expect them to have. But when they're out there on the tractor, well, they're going to be doing something different. He uses his belief in climate change to be a good farmer and then uses skepticism to be a good member of the community. And being a good member of the community and being a farmer, they don't conflict. He doesn't experience any kind of tension or conflict in holding those two beliefs. That's how you might understand how farmers can hold these views. But the phenomenon generalizes to other kinds of things too, like belief and disbelief and evolution. It seems puzzling, I agree, but I think if you were to look at it, almost everybody is going to have beliefs that operate in that way. So a scientist, for example, when he or she is examining human behavior and all the other phenomena in the world is going to believe that human behavior is determined by natural law forces, ones that nobody's in a position to change. But when they're at home and they're a parent, they certainly have attitudes about their children, including pride or sometimes aggravation that assume that in fact the child can make his or her own decisions independently of natural forces. It really just depends on what domain people are operating. They'll have the beliefs that are designed to make their lives work well in those domains. And sometimes those beliefs vary across the domain. Really what we were interested in in that study was people's perceptions of scientific consensus. Presumably people are assessing information that they encounter about what experts believe all the time and then forming some view about what scientific consensus is. What we found is that if you asked people whether a particular scientist who'd gotten high 
degree of training, who was on the faculty of a prestigious university. If you ask people, well, is this person an expert on climate change or on nuclear power or on gun control? People tended to credit that person as an expert on that issue if the scientist was depicted as holding the position that was consistent with the study subjects group. If the same expert, right, the same scientist was depicted as taking the position that was opposed to the one that prevailed within the subjects group, then they would say, well, he's not an expert on that issue. Outside the lab, they're encountering all kinds of evidence about what experts believe, but they selectively credit it or discredit it depending on whether it's consistent with the position in their group. And we found that the groups involved were as divided about what scientific consensus was on climate change or on gun control or nuclear waste disposal as they were on the underlying issues. The same processes that confuse them about what the facts are directly will also distort their judgments of who's an expert and what the experts believe. So neither side in those kinds of disputes identifies their position as being contrary to what science holds. Mm -hmm. Everybody thinks science is on their side in these kinds of battles. In surveys and in experiments, say that people tend to conform the evidence selectively to what fits their group's position. And because they do that with all the more intensity as their critical reasoning capacities are increasing, at some point you have to conclude this isn't a problem of a lack of rationality. It's a problem of too much. People are too good at fitting the evidence to what fits in their group. They have a stake in that. And if you force them to choose between knowing what's known by science and fitting into their group, they're going to choose the latter. Note that this is an issue of identity, not of facts or of logic. Once allegiances have already gelled, continuing to come at somebody in this state is simply seen not as informative, enlightening, or as an opportunity to agree, but as aggression, aggravation, and as an entirely intentional and unnecessary attack. And even something clinical and completely devoid of personal animus may be perceived this way in that situation, when it's presented as a no-win choice between your facts and their identity. Basically, if the only way to get them to agree with you is to attack their own identity, rarely will they go along. And we see this illustrated in BVS, because Superman doesn't ask Batman to see him as human, which would be confronting Batman with the identity question of murderer. After all, Batman has already dehumanized him, so this killing won't be murder. Instead, Superman affirms Batman's identity as a hero. Save Martha. Isn't that why you're doing this? To save people. Then save Martha. Martha. That appeal doesn't force Batman to refuse his own identity. It allows him to hear and absorb the fact of Martha, to understand that it's Superman's mother, and then see Superman as human, and his own actions as murder. And then as a matter of you catastrophe, his own connection to Martha, his reason for doing this, his actions meant to honor her, are also central and non-hostile to his identity, allowing the information to be assimilated. Between the one-two combination of these factors, you can see how Batman finally sees the light and why he throws away the spear. Again, it's so incredible how psychologically true BVS is. Remember that ultimately Batman is a hero, so whether you judge him from a or you adopt his perspective, you're wrong in either case. Clark was wrong to demand he bury the bat and to write that off as something irredeemable. Batman was wrong to be blinded by his nihilism. That all fall, so nothing that powerful should exist in principle. Next episode, we'll talk about balance and a way to reconcile these two views. But in today's call,
call-out or cancel culture coming years after BVS, how often are our summary judgments just as severe and certain? A single event allows Batman to forever brand Superman with disgust, which justifies his hatred and murderous intentions onward. Although ironically, Batman is not making himself out to be moral in the process, but instead he denigrates himself as a criminal, a hunter, and a weed puller seeking suicidally to secure a legacy at last. His indignation isn't upheld by self-righteousness, but an alleged utilitarian calculus. The end justifies the means. It's okay to dirty our hands, sink to their level, be a criminal or killer, or anything else for the cause. This mode of judgment doesn't care about the state of oneself. For the sake of the crusade, you can compromise on character. Do what needs to be done. Who cares if the whole world ends up blind, an eye for an eye? At least I got to take their eye. And certainly some take this tone in takedowns. As long as their perceived enemy is attacked, who cares if I have to be a worse version of myself to do it? Especially if the cause is just and my sins are small. The end justifies the means. Well, another time we may debate that form of philosophy, but it's certainly characteristic to the Batman-Superman dynamic across time and tellings. And so it makes sense that it would be in BVS. Well, accordingly, you'd see Superman on the other side of the coin and the corresponding issues there. As bad as we are at judging others, we're often just as bad at evaluating ourselves. Superman may try to stay above the fray, but not realize his own self-righteousness. Earlier, we noted that we might not apply the fundamental attribution error to ourselves when dealing with a question of bad behavior or character. Instead, we will always see and accept circumstantial reasons for why we had done the thing that we did. And yet, our self-serving bias causes us to overly attribute, in error, instances of good behavior to our dispositional character, instead of circumstances or situational factors. For example, if you tip well on one occasion, it's because you're a generous person, not just because you're in a good mood. Professor Christian Miller, author of The Character Gap. Yes, so the gap is the space between our actual character and the character we should have. In my research, I both use philosophy and psychology at the same time. Philosophy helps me think about what kind of character we should have. That's a virtuous character, an honest character, compassionate character, and the like of that. Psychology helps me understand what kind of character we actually have. How are we doing these days? What is a pattern of behavior that most people exhibit look like? So when I combine those two disciplines and the results from each, what I find is that there is a significant gap conceptually and empirically between how we actually are and how we should be. That's the character gap. What is character? So there is good evidence from psychology for the existence of character. Character traits are real. They exist. They're important both causally and explanatorily to behavior. But they're a lot more complicated than we might have initially thought. It doesn't often help to explain behavior to use simple categories like honest or dishonest. What the psychological research instead shows to me is that we have what I call a mixed character, a character which has some aspects which are morally positive and some aspects which are morally negative. There'll be situations in which someone will be motivated to tell the truth and other situations which they'll be motivated to tell a lie. And those situations might vary a small amount based on what's going on in the person's situation. So yes, character is real, it's important, but it's a lot more complicated than we might have initially thought. Could you give a specific example of that, a real life example of the complexity of character? Sure. There's been a recent approach to thinking about cheating in the psychology literature, which involves the following paradigm. You put people in a situation where they take a test, there are 20 problems, they're going to be paid 50 cents US 
per correct answer. In the control situation, there's no opportunity to cheat at all. They take the test, they turn in their answers, the person in charge grades their answer sheets. In one version of this experiment, they get about seven right on average. In another variation though, which is called the shredder condition, they have the opportunity to grade their answers afterwards and then just report how many they got correct, shredding all their materials in the process. So the idea is that they know that they can say whatever answer they want and be paid accordingly, no questions asked. Well, in this kind of situation, on average, in this one variation of the experiment I'm thinking of, about 14 answers in quotation marks were reported. So seven in the control, 14 in the experimental version with the shredder condition. So far up to this point, that's kind of a bleak picture. That's evidence of widespread cheating, I think it's fair to say. But there's another variation where first the participants were put in an honor code environment. In other words, they were asked to sign their university's honor code, pledging their honor that they would not cheat. Then they were given the test, shredder condition once again. You could report whatever you wanted to. Lo and behold, cheating was eliminated. The answers on average went back down to seven. So there might be a temptation to dismiss character entirely, but Miller summarizes the failed history of such a theory. That's an idea that's been around both in philosophy and psychology for some time. So going back to the 1960s, there was this situationist movement in psychology led by a psychologist named Walter Michel. And for a time, that idea was very prominent to the extent to which people were just discarding the idea of what was called global character or stable character, cross-situationally consistent character altogether. In psychology, though, that idea didn't last. In the 70s and 80s, it was put to one side. And in philosophy, this idea was picked up on in recent in years by certain philosophers like John Doris and Gilbert Harmon, but again has not found widespread support. Rather, it appears to be the case that character is much more complex than simply manifestations of your main traits, but still stable overall. It's too extreme to say that behavior is just a product of external situational forces. What's going on instead is that there's an interaction at work between our situation and environment on the one hand and internal features of our psychology. So I sign the honor code as a result of being in a situation that triggers in my mind certain psychological values and desires and hopes and the like of that, which then cumulatively give rise to behavior. And it's not just a one-off behavior or a random behavior. It is actually predictable. It's also cross-situationally consistent. So the idea is people want to cheat in a variety of situations, which they think they can get away with cheating, and it's to their self-benefit. But I also want to think of themselves as honest people in a variety of situations. So it's not just when they're taking this test and you have this chance to earn 50 cents per correct answer that you're motivated to cheat, but then the honor code would hinder that. It's that in a wide variety of situations, we're disposed in this way, both to want to cheat, but also to think of ourselves as honest people. And this generalizes now beyond just matters of cheating as well. We see this in the area of helping. We see this in the area of harming. We see this in the area of lying and and so forth, stealing, where you see consistent patterns of behavior across a variety of situations, patterns which are best explained by underlying psychological motivations and dispositions, but which ultimately are not virtuous psychological dispositions and motivations, which are instead, I think, best understood as mixed character traits. Finally, Miller describes recommendations from his research. But there's a reason for optimism and hope. I think there comes from psychology some evidence, first of all, that character is malleable. So whatever character we have now, we're not stuck with, is not fixed. We can change it, not dramatically overnight, typically, but gradually, slowly over time. And then secondly, that there are some actual concrete strategies for doing so. One is positive role models. So there's some evidence that identifying, admiring, and then seeking to emulate positive role models can have a good impact on one's own character. Whether these are fictional role models, whether these are historical 
role models, whether these are everyday role models in your own personal life, for example, a neighbor or a family member who's a paradigm of honesty, who you admire for their honesty, and then you want to become more like them. Your character is elevated or you want to emulate their character in your own life. That is one promising strategy for improving character. So the second idea is to use more reminders in your life. In the psychological research, some examples of that have been signing the honor code, which then has been found to prevent cheating from happening, or in another version, give participants the Ten Commandments, ask them to recall as many of the Ten Commandments as they can, and that's also been found to prevent cheating. The general idea here is that more reminders can attune us to what's morally salient and keep our perspective where it needs to be. There's so many other factors that come into our lives that can distract us, especially considerations of self-interest, that if we have regular moral reminders in our lives, things like text messages or a reading that we have every day or uh, something that we hang up in our office, that can be a way to regularly, repeatedly remind us and thereby strengthen over time our focus and our perspective on what's really important, morally speaking. Now, you've studied character in depth for over a decade. How has that changed your own approach to your own character? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Two really important things jumped to mind right away. One is it's made me appreciate the fact that my character is much more of a mixed bag and much more complicated than I initially thought. Didn't think I was a very good person to begin with, but I didn't really appreciate the subtleties and the complexities and the ways in which there are factors at work guiding my behavior that I wasn't even paying attention to, wasn't even aware of. For example, how much what other people are doing impacts whether I will help or not. If other people are not helping, it's very likely I will not help. I didn't realize that before I got into some of the psychological research. And so I've learned a whole bunch more about my own character. And then also in the process, tried to improve my character as well. The other factor is that I now have children, three children, they're six, four, and two. And it's really having worked on character impressed upon me the importance of trying to be a good role model of character to my children, because I've seen how character can be caught and morality can be caught and role models can be influential and for the good or for the bad. And my children are so important to me, obviously, and their characters at this stage in their lives are so malleable and fluid that I really want to pay attention to character, not only for my sake, but for the sake of my children as well. So three big takeaways. First, character is incredibly complex and situational factors weigh more than we'd like to think. But second, character is still too stable to attribute entirely to situation. It isn't all relative. Though third, and finally, while character is stable, it can change and develop, especially through role models and ritual reminders. Looking to examples of real character and rote repetition can affect and grow our character. On that latter point, let's go back to our details films. Let's look at Clark in BVS and Diana in Wonder Woman. Over the course of this cast, we've covered countless examples, but let's focus on the FAE. For Clark, you can see him turning to his role models, Martha and Jonathan, to help him deal with the FAE. But they see what you do, and they know who you are. You're not a killer. A threat? In objective reality, Clark has indeed killed, and there are those who feel threatened. But Martha strips away those labels and rejects the imposition of those as dispositions. He is not revealed by those circumstances, but by his constant, consistent, regular action. Clark's character is revealed in his routine, which even his critic Bruce Wayne has to acknowledge. The one who saves cats out of trees. You need not be defined by an action devoid of context or circumstance, aside from a pedantic or perhaps 
perhaps Kantian perspective, the one who lies to protect those hidden in their home from being hunted down for persecution isn't to be called a liar. Rather, I'd want to call them compassionate or courageous given the risks. In Wonder Woman, Diana learns this lesson all too well from the Oddfellows. A liar, a murderer, and now a smuggler. Lovely. Careful, I might get offended. I wasn't referring to you. Really? I want to undercover and pretend to be somebody else. Shot people on your beach, smuggle a notebook, liar, murder, smuggler. You still coming? If we want to talk about self-righteousness, in the past I've pointed out that not only does Steve Trevor fit Diana's derogatory descriptions, as he points out, but so does Diana. She hid her intentions from Hippolyta, killed on that beach too, and was smuggling Steve and the sword off the island as well. And certainly you've heard the sayings about the mote in the beam, the speck in the plank, or the splinter in the log. But Steve is strategic and cleverly doesn't go at her identity. Here, correction wouldn't be to go Batman's route and to call herself all those things. The world isn't made better if Diana is consistent in calling them all, the odd fellows Steve and herself, liars, murderers, and smugglers, but instead in recognizing the difference between situation and disposition, circumstance and character. And of course, through the film, that's exactly what she learns. The liar is an actor of the wrong color whose deceptions save lives and limits casualties. The murderer is a marksman whose service weighs so heavily he can't sleep or shoot to save his life. And the smuggler is in the only place that he's free to be and free to not fight, bringing providence at the expense of profit to those who are still in it themselves. Diana stops wishing it were all so simple, that if only there were evil people somewhere and that all that was necessary was to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, and instead finds that the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, something that no hero will ever defeat. That outside of war, these men might be an actor, a singer with the people or starting a family. Imagine instead of learning how everyone is fighting their own battle, if Diana had written them off as unclean, unworthy, and unable to contribute. If she had canceled their collaboration before it began after calling out their sins. This isn't to say that she supports lies or murder, but extending understanding and grace to one another isn't the same as endorsing their issues. Showing civility and standing by your values doesn't mean sacrificing your position. As I've said before, Diana sparing Maru or Clark saving Lex is not at all an endorsement of their crimes. It is showing a commitment to their own values, and you can't let that get stripped away by a single act circumstance, or the FAE. To return to Clark in BVS when he's on the mountain with Jonathan, the story of the horses illustrate this. Jonathan's hero cake exposes the self-serving bias to call oneself hero dispositionally for a good deed. But a broader perspective changes the frame. What was clearly good in a narrow context came with mixed consequences standing further back. Jonathan is neither a hero for the act that anyone would do, nor a monster for the unintended consequences. Sometimes, circumstances are just what they are. Difficult, complicated, and painful, without needing to impart anything to your identity or character. Relieving Clark of that burden means that he doesn't need to judge the world for what he's going through now, nor accept this situation as a statement of his identity. If you blame the everything for the instance, you end up with the anger of Lex or Bruce. Others have to pay because of your father's fists and abominations. The whole world is subjected to your force, your frame, your sense of sense, 
parents because your parents died in the gutter. Catastrophe is not to be taken as the character of the world, but a circumstance to survive. There are any number of ways that they can claim to be victims or oppressed and use that to extract their revenge or justify their indifference to the world. Imagine if the DC heroes judged the Earth dispositionally based on a single encounter. Clark rejects the world that bullied him and criticized him. Diana allows them to keep killing each other. Author leaves Atlantis to the conquering king it deserves. And Billy abandons because he had been. And so on. Of course, there are going to be ranges and judgment calls. Reasonable minds who differ on when and where to draw the line. You're driving on the highway and you notice that there's two kinds of people. There's maniacs driving faster than you and idiots driving slower. (laughs) If you have elderly parents, you're probably familiar with what we call thermostat wars and TV volume wars, where each insists that there's something seriously wrong with the other's internal thermostat or their hearing. Different ethnic groups often wonder at the really weird tastes that other people have. They like food incredibly spicy or hopelessly bland. We have very different tastes in art. I look at modern art sometimes and I say, uh, it's just a bunch of lines and dots. Who can take that seriously? Why isn't it classic like the work of the Fovis, who of course were thought to be renegades in their time? And I won't even talk about taste in music. And then, of course, we all have differing opinions about how hard tasks are and how easy. My wife thinks it's ridiculous that my daughter doesn't know how to sew a button. She thinks it's ridiculous that my wife doesn't know how to navigate the internet. If I think the world's black and you think it's white, we're both going to think someone who says it's gray, it's complicated, there's some black and there's some white. We're both going to think that that person isn't seeing things the way they really are, that they're taking the other side exaggerations and irrelevant observations and giving them just as much weight as our sound reasoning and trenchant examples. And so that becomes inevitable. Batman may bring a more cynical take that we need at times, but I don't think it's a radical reading of these films to say that a reoccurring theme is to not judge based on first impressions or when we're at our worst, that there's often opportunity for understanding, redemption, growth, and change. This man is not our enemy. Trust your reporter. I'm a friend of your son. It's not about deserve. And so on. We need to be aware of the influence of our priors on ourselves and on others to avoid conflating personal intuition and preference with the universal. Not everything is circumstance, but it's a much larger player than we predict or believe. We can resist naive realism or the fundamental attribution error if we take the time to listen and to see things from a different perspective, with more time and more grace and openness. In the next episode, we'll talk about one way to shift those perspectives because, interestingly enough, not all cultures suffer from the fundamental attribution error equally, but that's another show. In the end, I'm still asking you to be open, especially in the arena of art as opposed to argument. Evaluating subjectivity is always fraught with issues, and perhaps why most faiths and philosophies don't try to bound or prescribe what our preferences ought to be. You don't need to consult a priest to pick what color socks to wear, and philosophy serves little function in that regard, as illustrated by Chidi's choice in The Good Place between a brown and gray hat. Where is the real Chidi, though? Is he okay? He's still taking his test. Okay, this is ridiculous. Um, I'm just gonna choose brown. Gray's the obvious choice, which is probably why I shouldn't choose it. Brown. Nope. Gray. Nope. Brown. Brown hat.
Okay. Um, if, if I was the one who failed, could you at least tell me why I failed for my own edification? It took you 82 minutes to choose a hat. But did I at least choose the right one? There is no right one. They're hats. Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes choice is just choice and not some deeper reflection of character or meaning or identity. That's why it can sometimes be bad form to talk controversial topics like politics, religion, or money as a first impression to a captive audience. But on the other hand, we absolutely love playing trivial would-you-rather or this-or-that type games. Would you rather fight a hundred duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck? Would you rather have the power of flight or invisibility? <laughs> the absurdity diffuses the identity issue and makes it so that there really is no right answer. Other games like Pictionary or Charades show us how our common histories and associations can affect our interpretation of something that everyone is seeing simultaneously. We all know that couple that can convey impossibly complex concepts with a single seemingly indecipherable line. But isn't that the fun of it? Would You Rather is a lot less compelling if everyone agrees and there is no dilemma. Charades is silly if everyone gets everything uniformly with the same gesture. You don't have to justify your favorite color. You don't need a reason to be reasonable. Reasonable minds may differ. And that's okay. At the beginning we asked, did we even see the same film? And the answer is apparently no. Our priors, our biases, and so on shift our perceptions and our interpretations. So if that's the state of the world, is the solution to other others cancel and call out? Or can we understand and try to be understood? How much better off are we with Superman and Batman? And not just either or. Reasonable minds may differ. Okay, I've rambled on long enough. So thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, signing off. See you next time. So this was a grab bag of social psychology research and experiments from the fundamental attribution error to naive realism, rationality hypothesis, character gap, critical prediction, and cognitive illusions, and so much more. And believe me when I say that there was a lot cut out or held back. But even if not included, I do want to put links in the show notes on pluralistic ignorance and call out culture. So be sure to check those out. This is the fourth or fifth time I've cut out Bayesian reasoning, and I think I'm over it. I took out the career of Lee Ross, even though we talk a lot about his collaborator Richard Nisbet next episode, and I took out some illustrations or comparisons to the Good Samaritan, which I think you can figure out yourself. The unabridged version was too long because I had so many asterisks, footnotes, disclaimers, excerpts, and exceptions that swallow the rule given the nature of social psychology. But I am going to raise this one in regards to the movie rating study. You're the answer, son. Aside from replication and that the sample source mainly came from NYU students, I do want to raise at least one thing to think about that we've discussed before in the context of food surveys, the cola wars, and understanding that taste clusters capture more consumer happiness than trying to create a single platonic ideal for all. It was the idea that self-reported ratings suffer some softness. Consider the following excerpt from You May Also Like by Tom Vanderbilt. 
was how do you measure how much someone likes something? Pioneering psychologists like Wilhelm Wundt had tried to quantify through psychophysics the inexact ways our senses responded to various stimuli. For example, when you double the sweetness of something and it does not taste twice as sweet. But no one had been able, or had much tried, to quantify liking. And so the nine-point hedonic scale was born. First used on soldiers, it eventually found its way into the test kitchens of just about every major food manufacturer. Whatever's in your refrigerator at this moment, chances are that someone, somewhere, has indicated his liking of it on a scale from one to nine. The simplicity, relative accuracy, and value of hedonic scores as an industry standard has overshadowed the ongoing methodological issues in trying to put a number on liking. Other methods, like polygraphs, have failed dismally, but issues abound. There are semantic problems. Does like slightly mean the same thing to one person as another? There are issues with the math. The number eight, Cardello noted, does not mean twice as much liking as the number four. Could liking and disliking be expressed on the same scale? As work by Timothy Wilson and colleagues at the University of Virginia has made clear, asking people to analyze why they chose something can lead them to change their original choice, and usually not for the better. But merely asking consumers what they like is also not as simple as you might think. In one common tool, the Just About Right scale, people are given samples of a product. Each will have, say, a different gradation of sweetening. The consumer indicates which is just about right. Sounds fine, no? There's just one problem. The level of sweetening a subject chooses is often different from what he says he likes. Then there's the fact that most people do not pick the number 1 or 9. Those seem too artificial. People hedge. It becomes, by default, a 7-point scale. You're never sure that you're not going to get a product in the next sample that's even better than the one you just tasted, Cardello said. Our confusion about our own tastes translates into trouble for people trying to measure those tastes. People in general tend toward a regression to the mean in terms of liking. Ask them ahead of time how much they like lasagna or liver, say, and then ask them again after they have actually consumed it, and subjects will mark their favorite foods a bit lower and their least favorite a bit higher. Expectations haunt our liking, but they confound us. Peer into the science of liking long enough, and you might begin to think this is something approaching a mantra. The bad is never as bad as we think it is. The good never is good. Pascal is confident that movie tastes are stable overall, and he might be right, but personally, I know that my perspective, evaluation, or appreciation for a film varies and changes over time. The idea that a score is stable is actually a bit of a Western bias, which is also embedded in a study asking for a population around NYU to score films once and for all time. And we'll get into how an Eastern evaluation may differ a little later. You're the answer, son. Okay, so that was the clip, and there were so many more. There was one clip cut regarding Miller discussing the Ring of Gyges, and I'll leave a link to that in the show notes as well. Anyways, with countless little objections and counter-arguments, it could be hard to tell where I was going with things, so I cut a lot of that out, but I think some of the transitions may have suffered, and this episode isn't as clear as intended. But regardless, I have to limit how much time I spend on these, so out it goes, as it is, and I just thank you for putting up with it. (laughs) If you stuck with me at the end of the last episode, you know that we had a fundraiser going, and I want to thank the following listeners for contributing to my hosting fundraiser. Maxwell, Torbjörn, Christopher, Nathan, Tim, Rebecca, Peter, and especially Roberto and Garrett, thank you so much for your support. It means a great deal to me, and I promise you the show can keep going thanks to your support. Uh, The shirts will still be on sale for a couple more days if you're interested, and of course you could always make a donation. But that's it. That's the show. Thanks so much for listening. Donate, buy a shirt, share, or send a review. Let me hear from you. See you next time. (laughs) You're the answer, son. The point is that petty, frustrating crap like this is exactly where the work of choosing is going to come in. 
because the traffic jams and crowded aisles and long checkout lines give me time to think. And if I don't make a conscious decision about how to think and what to pay attention to, I'm going to be pissed and miserable every time I have to shop. Because my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me. About my hungriness and my fatigue and my desire to just get home. And it's going to seem for all the world like everybody else is just in my way. And who are all these people in my way? And look at how repulsive most of them are and how stupid and cow-like and dead-eyed and non-human they seem in the checkout line. Or at how annoying and rude it is that people are talking loudly on cell phones in the middle of the line. And look at how deeply, personally unfair this is. If I choose to think this way in the store and on the freeway, fine. Lots of us do. Except thinking this way tends to be so easy and automatic that it doesn't have to be a choice. It is my natural default setting. It's the automatic way that I experience the boring, frustrating, crowded parts of adult life when I'm operating on the automatic, unconscious belief that I am the center of the world and that my immediate needs and feelings are what should determine the world's priorities. The thing is that, of course, there are totally different ways to think about these kinds of situations. In this traffic, all these vehicles stuck and idling in my way, it's not impossible that some of these people in SUVs have been in horrible auto accidents in the past and now find driving so terrifying that their therapist has all but ordered them to get a huge heavy SUV so they can feel safe enough to drive. Or I can choose to force myself to consider the likelihood that everyone else in the supermarket's checkout line is just as bored and frustrated as I am and that some of these people probably have much harder, more tedious or painful lives than I do. Again, please don't think I'm giving you moral advice or that I'm saying you're supposed to think this way or that anyone expects you to just automatically do it because it's hard. It takes will and effort and if you are like me, some days you won't be able to do it or you just flat out won't want to. But most days, if you're aware enough to give yourself a choice, you can choose to look differently at this fat, dead-eyed, over-made-up lady who just screamed at her kid in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. Maybe she's been up three straight nights holding the hand of her husband who's dying of bone cancer. Or maybe this very lady is the low-wage clerk at the motor vehicles department who just yesterday helped your spouse resolve a horrific, infuriating red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness. Of course, none of this is likely, but it's also not impossible. It just depends what you want to consider. If you're automatically sure that you know what reality is and who and what is really important, if you want to operate on your default setting, then you, like me, probably won't consider possibilities that aren't annoying and miserable. But if you really learn how to think, how to pay attention, then you will know you have other options. It will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell type situation as not only meaningful, but sacred. On fire with the same force that lit the stars. Love, fellowship, the mystical oneness of all things deep down. Not that that mystical stuff's necessarily true. The only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide how you're going to try to see it. This, I submit, is the freedom of real education, of learning how to be well-adjusted. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. That is real freedom. That is being educated and understanding how to think. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. I know that this stuff probably doesn't sound fun and breezy or grandly inspirational. What it is, as far as I can see, is the capital T truth 
with a whole lot of rhetorical niceties stripped away. You are, of course, free to think of it whatever you wish. But please don't just dismiss it as some finger-wagging Dr. Laura sermon. None of this stuff is really about morality or religion or dogma or big fancy questions of life after death. The capital T truth is about life before death. It is about the real value of a real education, which has almost nothing to do with knowledge and everything to do with simple awareness. Awareness of what is so real and essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us all the time, that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over, this is water, this is water. You're the answer, son.